Welcome to Speak Sex. I am Eve Eurydice. I am Greek from the island of Lesbos, where the lesbians come from. Um, I am a writer and artist on the theme of sex. I've written three books on female sexuality. I was a staff writer on Spin Magazine and Gear Magazine. I wrote the Sex Files column for years. I've been on talk shows, TV shows, as a sex expert. Um, I wrote a book published by Scribner Satiricon USA, A Journey Through the American Sexual Frontier, and so on. Um, I have worked on this theme of female sexuality, female objectification, and the dichotomy between our bodies and our minds um, that is kind of forced on us by our society as it exists now, the break, the dichotomy between our hormones and our souls, and how to bridge it for my entire 20-some-odd-year career. Um, I'm interested in a non-binary sexuality, and the reason for this podcast, Se- Speak Sex, is that I came up with this idea that at this moment in our written history, um, we find ourselves with this extraordinary gift as women of being able to name consent. We have earned the ability to say yes to sex. We, as far as I know, never had that before. And that is the crack in the wall. It's the little opening through patriarchy, through the density of patriarchy that gives us speech, gives us the opportunity to not only agree verbally through consent to sex, but then keep going from there and naming our desire, naming what we like, what we don't like, what our limits are, what our fantasies are, what we think about when we are alone in bed, as free as we can be, just with ourselves. Um, putting in words what we have been taught is unspeakable and shameful and secret and deeply private. And because it's been described as such, um, it hasn't been pre-articulated by the system by our laws, our religions, our neighbors, our parents, our teachers. It's just ours for the naming. And that's why um, I suggest and encourage everyone to rethink the practice of speaking sex and negotiating the sexual experience step by step in order to reclaim that Uh, freedom for women and men by extension because um, women generated sexuality if followed all the way in, in its practice will eventually free men from their own burdens of monetizing, providing, uh, competing, um, conquering um, and the ultimate burden of not being able to be vulnerable and soft and uh, take and 
bipassi insects, which is, uh, I think, very difficult for the male gender. Okay, so that's my basic uh, explanation of this podcast. Um, there is an introductory episode online, which you can always refer to. Um, and today I want to welcome my guest. She's a friend of mine for years. Um, she's visiting Miami from New York. Her name is Sloan. Um, she's a beautiful and brilliant woman in her 40s, 50s. I'm not going to say exact <laughs> age, but that's it. <laughs> Leave it at that. Yeah. So welcome, Sloan. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. I want to discuss, um, you know, on both a theoretical and a practical personal level, these issues of um, how our sex lives have changed basically right now, you know, in the past like five years and whether we could think of it as revolutionary. Um, so my topics are the way that we have redefined sexuality by going on the dating apps, all the numerous apps that allow us to basically, you know, feel our desire based on like a couple of images, a few little lines, and then this kind of the swiping right and left, which fascinates me. Hmm. Um, the first date, how that works, uh, the first experience of sex, um, and what really um, excites me about it, what I find positive in this, is the um, possibility of separating, in a casual way, separating one's emotional life, one's um, love life, one's lifelong monogamous commitment to a man, separating that, that whole romantic mythology, from sex, from just the experience of, you know, physical pleasure that doesn't have get have to be weighed down by um, all these kind of like Disneyfied, you know, mythical requirements where you know the man that you sleep with has to be endowed, you know, with. So I know that you've had a little experience with this recently. It's beginning to. <laughs> uh, my initial experiences with uh, dating apps were vicarious, of course. Um, it seems to be the, the way nowadays. So, I mean, I know I've talked to you about this, and I guess I'll say it for everyone. Um, Saul, my husband, um, and I have been trying to um, find our way and navigate this new landscape of separating, as you suggest, um, our romantic and financial connection um, with our own individual sexuality. And it's a new venture. Um, I would say it's only six months or so that we've been on this journey. Um, and what I've learned so far is that language, insofar as we reveal on these texts, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been on these apps, but um, they allow you to initiate conversation. And they're very female centric. I mean, the one that sort of is on the rise now is one called 
Bumble, mm -hmm. um, for which you're receiving no mm -hmm. uh, compensation. <laughs> right. Um, and what what attracted me to that one is that it um, it's it's sold as a woman um, centric, or the woman is the one who initiates the conversation. Yes. So I find that like within this arena, um, there's a power that is implicit, and um, I find that it allows for. Uh, me to articulate demands in this sphere that I would never be able to articulate in the world as we know it, right? Because the 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 parameters of safety have been negotiated by entering this safe space, if you will, of the app. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. I feel like it's. In the conversations that I've had, I feel that um, I'm definitely able to request things that I would never be able to request had I met somebody, you know, in in the regular IRL. Mm -hmm. um, such as? Such as specifically, like, um, really being forward about oral sex, you know, um, and negotiating those terms, like, asking straight out, um, how much do you enjoy oral sex? Which was a question for me. I mean, Saul was, let's say he was not um, that oral, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. So for many years, I found that my fantasy was mostly oral. And when I looked at porn, um, that was the big gap, you know? Um, no pun intended, but mm -hmm. there was um, a paucity of um, joy being um, gifted onto the pussy, let's say, by the mouth. I felt that um, when it, when I saw like oral sex, it was repetitive and um, not inventive um, unless it was like lesbian sex. So I guess I was curious, and I use these apps as a way to kind of investigate, do men really like eating pussy? Um, and again, I'm still in the discovery phase, but this is sort of a criteria that I use to weed out my prospective lovers. And what I have found is that they recoil sometimes. Like you can straight out ask them, you know, how much oral sex are you interested in in giving and they will say things that are utterly surprising to me um like well that depends right? <laughs> on what uh, uh, um on how it's served some was one response <laughs> um which means what which means i guess that the conditions of the vagina are sort of um, on trial, right? And so the feeling, as I investigate more, the, the, the sort of feeling that I'm getting is that they're ultimately not that interested in oral sex. Even before they've even met the vagina in, in question, there are already um, reservations and almost like I have the sense that they feel that um, this isn't something that they're even accustomed to being... Um, you know, asked. I don't know if other women are asking for oral sex that much. 
I mean, what do you think? I think it's fascinating because, you know, men are trained to say and do anything to get laid. Right. So if all they have to do is say, yes, absolutely, I'd love to eat you out. When yeah. do you want to meet? Right. And then while they're doing it, they can get they can what they out. want. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it seems then that it's because they're, they, they feel that they're not in control if maybe. they're eating out. Or maybe even through the language. of submission. Right. Yeah. But yeah, also, let's just go back for yeah. a second. I mean, I want, we're talking about the, the dating apps, but just to backtrack for a second, it is fascinating um, and instructive that so much of, of porn, I mean, there's so much porn out there, mm-hmm. you know, like guys getting fucked by horses, mm-hmm. girls getting fucked by their dogs, uh, and et cetera. All of, anything you can come up with, it's there. But yes. Are the dogs right. eating pussy? Their dogs, no, everybody's doing, um, you know, anal or <laughs> or vaginal, that's it. <laughs> I mean, if it's the guy who's been fucked, it's anal. But if it's the girl, it's usually both. But no, nobody is, you know, well, I'm sure there must be some where they're sucking the animal. But my point is, there is very little video of actually just oral. A mm-hmm. man going down on a mm-hmm. woman and the woman squirting, coming mm-hmm. voluminously mm-hmm. into his mouth. And mm-hmm. that being the name of the porn. So you can like put what you want right. and that big category pops up. No. No, there's no oral squirting genre, I don't think. Exactly. Yeah. And well, yet it's so common and familiar to us in our own sex lives. You know, which like, you know, we think of as pretty heteronormative. We, you know, we, we don't do any real wild or crazy things at all. <laughs> so 90% of what's on, in porn are things that we wouldn't do, but we definitely come squirt, you know, on the mouths or faces of like the men who are eating us out. And we love doing that. So to us, that's the climax. That's the highlight, right, of like n- n- normative sex. But it's not out there in the pornography so there must be the, well there's some stigma i'll say this okay now we're on to squirting i'll mm. say <laughs> we've slipped on down um just to put a pin on that for a second and go back to the language i do think something that you mentioned is interesting and i hadn't thought of it where the seductive texting right you would think that they would be completely um you know forthcoming and pro- even falsely promising mm-hmm. but i hadn't thought of that um, even in the language stage, they're unwilling to relinquish that power, which I guess wow. maybe that's what we're kind of establishing, that it might be a power. Because if you think about the porn where they grab the girl's head and you know they shove it into the cock, that, you know, that is a scene that we see very frequently. And the control of the head um, going up and down, I feel that um, that's definitely a domination mm-hmm. gesture mm-hmm. and so to be on their knees and have their mm-hmm. head between our legs mm-hmm. is kind of the death of submission for them I would imagine mm-hmm. it's utterly surprising to me and I'm still on this journey investigating I'm like do men really like to eat pussy I don't know the answer I know me- women some women love to suck dick mm-hmm and I've I've been ha- I've had con- you so have you mm-hmm. had conversations where women you know extol the the delights, right? But but, but I I'm a hundred percent sure what women love about 
about the practice of, you know, a blowjob is the power trip. I have no doubt. I've, I have friends who have given like 1,200 blowjobs. So uh, we've had endless conversations about this, you know, including, and, and most of them have ended up with like uh, jaw lock, <laughs> lock, you know, issues, um, psychological effects of this. But I know that their pleasure, their high, was in the power that during that experience of whatever few minutes, the man was just paralyzed and under their control. So it wasn't that they were coming. It wasn't a sexual pleasure for them so much as a psychological pleasure. You know, it's a little like, you know, the Weinsteins in the world who get high more from the conquest, the idea that they submitted you to their will, however briefly, than the actual sexual pleasure. That's so why he was, he's been accused of oral rape by a number of women. I'm going to say like a handful of women at least. Exa which, you know, to you and me is kind of surprising. What's his pleasure from that? So I think that that's what it is. It's a power trip. Well, if that's the case, then why would men who supposedly are more interested in power um, and, and having power over women, why is it that they're not jumping on the oral sex wagon? You know, it seems there's something counterintuitive there um, because they clearly must know that that is what we like the best. Right, they know it by now for sure. They know, right? <laughs> yeah, that was the, like word is the out, first right? wave of feminism established that. <laughs> right. So the, why is it that women are um, willing to take the reins on the power trip and take the cock in their mouth, and men aren't willing to, re I mean, a, a man who can give a woman oral pleasure is a king. Mm -hmm. Because it's much harder to do that than it is for a woman to give a blowjob. So why are men not taking, um, their, taking pride in their prowess? It's mm -hmm. just a mystery to me, mm -hmm. you know? Well, I think that there are, I mean, I have, I know men who are, and, you know, I, I know men who will say, the first thing they'll say is, oh, you know, I'm really good at eating pussy. And I are know. they? Yes, yes. Um, or, uh, you know, I have a friend who's like, I have a forked tongue. <laughs> um, they're feminist men. They're definitely what's now known, called, you know, woke men in that sense. So um, they are, Liberated. I don't think they're on Bumble. <laughs> they're probably not on Bumble. Well, he of the forked tongue was that a, gen a mutilation? Did they, no, did he do just that? Born oh. that way. <laughs> Demonic skills. Um, okay, and then so Bumble. Yeah. So I think okay. So there are a couple of things. So that men seem to be unwilling to submit um, verbally. Um, and, and as far as um, the reality, I have, when I see, when I sense this resistance, they don't get a date, right? The ones who are promising to be amazing at oral sex, they get the date. And yes, they deliver, right? But what I have found is that pretty quickly, after three or four dates, it becomes, uh, it's sort of like now that they've conquered, they kind of forget 
to go down unless huh. it's like a 69 situation. Interesting. Right. So the the pleasure for pleasure's sake of, um, you know, cunnilingus kind of goes by the wayside. Hmm. So I'm still looking for um, a partner who really can enjoy and truly have hunger and desire mm -hmm. for it for the tape for everything mm -hmm. i don't want to feel like it's um something that they're doing in order to uh necessarily just watch the results or to feel their their the power i want someone who enjoys it who enjoys all of it mm -hmm. and i don't know i i well, have never met a man who really truly truly enjoys it mm -hmm. well i think that i mean there are men definitely who fetishize eating eating pussy um and that's all they want and it's i'm actually going to have one on the program mm -hmm. <laughs> in a couple of uh, weeks um and they feel the opposite meaning they feel that their young and pretty girlfriends want them to be in charge and always want them to do everything and will not actively take initiative and let's say sit on their faces, you know, make it what they want um, and, and grind hard and dominate them. Um, but it may be that those men are not on Bumble or Harmony or Match or Tinder. Um, and that's something that is interesting to, you know, discuss a little, a little more because I think that those apps are frequented by hunters, you know, by sexual predators. Hmm. Um, and by that, I mean, they identify themselves as, you know, um, active sexual hunters or mm -hmm. questers or searchers. So they are willing to make the profile, to put themselves out there. They go from that place of um, the I, you know, the letter I, the kind of strong male I, I am ready, pick me, take me. So it requires a certain personality, a less, I'm going to say, a less nuanced or less sensitive personality, for at least for a man. Um, how, how did you experience sexting before you, you met that, the date? Uh, once you swiped, whichever mm -hmm. way is right. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever way is a yes, and then you initiate the sex. Well, I'm still swiping in the wrong direction because I'm so <laughs> new at it. Um, okay, so I found that men are very happily willing to jump right into it, hmm. which that was very pleasing to me. Hmm. But I do find that in my situation where my experiment is to completely compartmentalize the romance with the sex... I found it really difficult to keep men on track, just talk about sex. Mm. They want to bring in the romance because I think that's the, what they're programmed. They think that's what we want. So I'm kind of in the situation where I'm trying to deprogram men. Um, it's so, beautiful. Yeah, and it's not, it's not that successful or Rather, I still haven't found somebody who's willing to play the game 100%. Right. Well, I mean, you are in a 
in a sense, in a good place because because you're still married to Saul and you want to keep the marriage together mm-hmm. for the sake of your sons and and for the you sake know, of my household yeah. yeah finances um, and also let's face it I mean Saul and I have been together for so long really have a life together. a great life with him mm-hmm. so the sex is separate mm-hmm. and I will let you know if it ever gets confusing but so far I've been able to keep it separate and Yeah, because with him, your family, but after like however many years it is, 25 or something. <laughs> um, Especially, I sex made the mistake. Old. Yeah, and I made the mistake of hiring a young live-in, so. Yeah. Yeah, the story for, you know, Another our time. listeners yes. is that Saul first misbehaved with the maid, kind of like shook you up hard, broke yeah. your heart. Well, on both, yes, because it was a betrayal on both sides. Mm-hmm. But then but um, then liberated me liberated you right because yeah Cause you, suddenly it's like well you earned the right to, yes to do it yourself right and better in, I, in an informed conscious way you know not mm-hmm. with a maid because you can't help yourself there is like mm-hmm. young you know vagina around mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in a in a way that's now agreed upon so you both you and your husband have agreed on this mm-hmm. um And I, and I do think that it's um, you know liberated and beautifully conscious to actually say this is what we're gonna do we're gonna save our relationship um, you know the years that we've invested into being together knowing each other's backgrounds histories families you know quirks feelings uh, being basically not only a couple but like brother sister family you know that union we're gonna preserve it mm-hmm. and our need for you you know, sexual adventure, now that the kids are out of the house, they're in college, mm-hmm. we are going to separate it from, you know, like the search for love and a mate. That's not what it is. It's just about wanting to feel sexually alive again at this stage in our lives before we, you know, suddenly feel old. And that's all it is, you know, just kind of like experience your body with all the knowledge of that you are earned by living in a new way. So what you're saying to me is that a lot of the partners that you meet on the apps at some point would like to like let's say call you their girlfriend or take you out to dinner or or do all those other little rituals right. exactly and you don't want to because that's soul's territory that's right mm-hmm. and it's frankly a turnoff <laughs> because it doesn't fit in with the narrative that I've constructed you know you say something that that um, makes me sort of become aware that my sort of liberation if you want to call it that is coinciding with a particular moment in in women's in the culture yeah. right in the culture right and part of why it's so important for me to keep things separate um, is because maybe there is a possibility right maybe maybe I can juggle even that maybe I can have a full-blown romance and a and a marriage and But I think what's important for me is, as you said, consciously to reclaim um, what I felt that I surrendered in the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So for me, really drawing out all of the terms, the contract is, is, is very um, hard and fast. It's not negotiable for me. 
And so in a way, sometimes I think it's maybe arbitrary, I'm not sure, but some of my bullet points, my needs, and I sort of, I think of it as a sort of a job application. <laughs> Do you eat That's pussy? <laughs> you know, like these sort of um, attributes that I'm looking for are, are really non-negotiable. Um, and I think that now that I'm, I'm speaking with you and we are kind of stepping back and looking at it in this sort of cultural context, that's something I think I'd like to talk about as well, because I'm maybe becoming aware of that at this moment. So what are the bullet points? <laughs> well, the bullet points are that they can't know anything about me, first of all. Um, they cannot ask anything about where I live, who is my husband, who are my boys, where they go to school. There's no private information at all. Um, and then also that they have to spend money on me um, and that I will spend no money. Interesting. Um, so in that sense, it's a kind of a parallel to my married life. Mm -hmm. um, but that's partly out of respect for Saul hmm. because I don't think he should be spending money on, you know, Interesting. my dates. Interesting. Um, And he actually asked me not to. Mm -hmm. So that's that's something that I've given him. I've acquiesced in that because I, I agree. So you meet them. So they book a hotel room or a motel room. They pay for that. Well, they usually or... have apartments mm. in the city or even in Brooklyn. I've gone. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, we have the Southampton house. Mm. So and I'm, you know, Saul gives me. The, all of the freedom in the world. So on the weekends, I will have somebody drive up and meet me there. Even some of the, I have a local guy in Southampton as well. Hmm. Um, uh, I was a, actually a caretaker of a property, um, quite young. Um, but um, I feel that not spending money, um, so, and then I don't mind if it's not, like they don't need to take me to a lavish you know, um, place, if, if they, if we're meeting in the city, it doesn't have to be like a lavish hotel. It just has to be something that they take the initiative and sort of treat me like their side hoe. Like I want to be treated like I am their secret as well. Mm. And I think that somebody who's willing to go there in the fantasy sense Um, is is a kind of person I'm looking for because then they can protect my own privacy. So you don't want them to tell you their, how they spend their day, Not what at they all. did at work, Ooh, no. what their kids are... Gross. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know, that's the, those are the details that kill, romance, that kill sexuality in a marriage. Exactly. I've been down that road. Exactly. You know, yeah. the less I know, the better. It's all about chemistry. And it is literally all about what happens in bed. Yeah, or Pheromo not in bed. pheromones and that yeah. openness. Yeah. Which is amazing because now it opens me up to a whole smorgasbord of men that are not dateable for me. Right. Right? Right. So I can date the caretaker of Southampton. I don't have to worry about where he went to school or where his prospects are. Where is he going with his life? Nada. Nada. You know? You can compartmentalize. Exactly. Mm. Just keep it to the sex. Yeah. Yeah, which is what men have done for a long time. And, you know, not quite 
openly. Now it's much more open, in part because of these, you know, dating apps and the way that we can find meet men mm-hmm. without, um, you know, having to like be introduced at the dinner party, mm-hmm. you know, with your husband mm-hmm. present or mm-hmm. whatnot. Yeah, the anonymity of of um, the internet. Yes, that's one of the perks. Well, and if you ask me if I feel sort of um, patriarchally entitled or sort of masculine because I have this ability to compartmentalize, um, I want to say yes. Uh-huh. I want to say that there's a kind of rush uh-huh. to be the one to draw the lines, uh-huh. right? Because it is empowering. It, yeah, it is. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure if that makes me feel sexy or not. Because I like to be a woman, and I like submission, but it makes me feel more in control mm-hmm. of um, of this fine line that I'm trying to walk. So it doesn't make me feel more sexy. It just makes me feel safer. Which you know, there's something that you know you and I have talked about that my sexuality is really tied into feeling um, cared for and financially cared for. So I come from a generation of sort of growing up on this idea of a 50s housewife was um, attractive to me. I still had enough access to the TV shows that, you know, I still had that, that paradigm was still available to me. It's been snuffed. And I don't think our girls have any concept of what that even meant to be uh, just a housewife, what's that? Um, but, but for me, it was very much alive. And it was, the, it was the way that I was sexualized, I guess. So it's always been part of my fantasy to sort of wear the house coat and, you know, have the slippers waiting for your husband and, you know, and Saul wanted somebody like that. Now remind me again, you met so like soon after college? Or you, you didn't actually like join the, uh, you didn't pursue a career, right? Well, I mean, I did have jobs, let's, mm. you know, um, but I wouldn't call them, I wouldn't say that my aspirations were ever career uh-huh. oriented. And then, you know, I, I got pregnant, you uh-huh. know, early, you know, when I was 26. So it was right that's very early yeah, yeah it was just the right time for me to be able to say okay i don't have to go down that career path yeah choice has been made mm-hmm. um and fortunate that's all you know has has done very well and um so you you went to smith just for mm-hmm. our audience and then went back to the city and got jobs here and there right. met Saul, got pregnant right got married yeah, and that's yeah. all the old-fashioned way by being introduced by a friend. Oh, <laughs> nice. Dinner party. Blind date or Perfect. something. Yeah, yeah. dinner yeah. party. Nice. Yes. So my plan was coming to fruition mm-hmm. um, until I found him in the bathtub with the maid and, you know, things mm-hmm. blew up. But I kind of like where I am. Yeah. Steve. You know, it's, 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 a, it's an era of discovery for me. It's interesting. I just want to pause for a second. Um, I... I do have at least two more friends who have had the exact same experience where mm. they you know, they realized their husbands were have cheating or having an affair, minor, not a grand love story. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have said to me that the marriage is stronger because they overcame it and stayed together. Mm-hmm. But they also have like separate 
sex lives um, and um, have found peace and happiness that way because it has allowed them to stay in the marriage and feel stronger together and focus on the children and, and not have that sense of, of threat, um, you know, of divorce uh, and understand each other's limits, you know, they, like define themselves as free sexual beings, but then committed emotional beings or committed, you know, uh, spouses. Mm-hmm. So it is a choice that I think is happening right now. Uh, it's not so, you know, widely advertised because it, um, it's outside it threat- the paradigm. It, it threatens marriage and we all know how sanctified exactly. that is. Well, it's interesting you say that Every, all of your friends, including myself, um, this w- was set off by an infidelity uh-huh. of the male. Uh-huh. So when I hear that, I think, oh, well, you know, this is a re- retaliatory um, condition, right? I would love to hear a story where a woman came to this um, arrangement consciously um, and she initiated it. Actually, there's a there's a short Netflix series called Wanderlust with uh-huh. Tony Collette, and she plays a psychologist, uh-huh. and she actually is the one who initiates it. She and her husband both admit that uh-huh. they've just, you know, been unfaithful, uh-huh. and she proposes a plan where they sort of go and do their own thing, and it follows them through the expected complications that ensue, but... But yeah, I mean, I'd love to, perhaps people will come to you now and share their stories, but I'm Uh interested to know of women who, um, perhaps it was the other way around. They Uh were the ones, because I I certainly didn't give myself license to do this. It sort of took um, the Uh man to take the first move. Um, And again, I think that's sort of part of my, my path is a sort of, Although right now it sounds like I'm a sort of empowered position in a way. It's a, in almost a submission as well. Yeah. Yeah, interestingly, the women I know who um, had affairs ended up leaving their husbands and siding with the new men, um, you know, breaking up the family of both. Sometimes the, the new man was also married, so he got a divorce and the woman got a divorce and they coupled up and joined their kids at least half the time. Um, so it feels like when I look at it within my uh, social universe, the men have historically uh, been allowed to have affairs. So like our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation among Again, among in my circle, a, a lot of a lot of whom are European transplants, uh, their fathers or the grandfathers had affairs. It was kept quiet. It was understood that the wife was the powerful one. Big house, she would little never, house. Right. So they would never break up the family. Their commitment was to their family unit. You know, their wife was even more empowered by their infidelities, but she didn't at least officially, to anyone's knowledge, reciprocate. Um, If she did, it was totally hidden because they don't know. Um, So in our generation, we are able, we women, uh, especially those of us who are daughters or granddaughters of cheating husbands, Mm -hmm. are able to find a way to accept the infidelity of the husband, of the man, because it's something that was done and we get find our power within it 
by earning our right to have an independent sexual life officially. And in that way, like through that little crack in the wall, we earn our sexual independence within the couple, which I think is important. Um, but when the woman is the one who breaks the vows and, and you know, has an affair, I think that it's much harder for her to go back to the husband and say, let's just renegotiate our marital contract so that we can both be free sexually. And most of the time she feels that it can only be justified by her embracing that entire system of romantic love and faithfulness and monogamy once again with the new husband. So she has to break up mm -hmm. the first family and to start build another next, one. Build another family. So she goes. She stays with like the, you know, acceptable right to concept, be virtuous. The narrative that we agree right. is virtuous, right? right? Right, because then she's not shamed if she begins anew and and sets up another love. Right, she's now the wife once again. She's right. not like the adulteress, the letter Scarlet right. A. I don't know. I mean, I, I would throw this back at you. You know much more about other cultures. Um, is there a culture where a woman, an adulterous woman, would not be shamed? No. Not that I, not, none, no. no. Or was there a time? Well, I feel that, um, yeah, there were times when uh, women w were allowed to take lovers because they were extremely rich and came from noble, you know, landowning mm -hmm. uh, families, um, enterprises, I would call them. But uh, those are, you know, exceptions. So there would be maybe like a handful <laughs> among millions. <laughs> so I think that that's why we are in patriarchy. You know, um, the the system, the moral system, you know, the religion, it, it all puts us in that place of being owned, of being chattel. You know, we belong to our fathers whose name we carry and whom we represent in the world. And then the father passes us on to the husband, whose name we take on, and then we represent him in the world. So our virtue, which means our sexlessness, mm -hmm. um, is their honor. But, th th it's, it, but it's not fair and equal. We, they don't take our name, and their behavior out in the world does not speak o on us or besmirch us. So... Let's say we're married to a rich and important man and he goes out and has an affair. That doesn't necessarily shame us in the eyes of the world because it's considered a little more normal. Well, was Hillary shamed by by her husband's actions? Well, she didn't seem to. I mean, she stayed married to him and she, you know, wanted to be president and bring him back in the White House as the first husband. So she didn't act as if she were yeah. shamed. And, you know, the fact that this was a 21-year-old intern makes it even more problematic because of the, you know, uh, power, e extreme, you know, power difference between them. So it's not even that he was having an affair with, uh, you know, the wife of, of a common friend of another politician, which, you know, or the daughter even of... That would have been more threatening. That there's, there would have been more shame attached to that. I mean, that kind of the doubt. Well, he was, actually. Uh, I'm not going to name it here, but we all know who else he was sleeping with. Besides the women who went out in the open, he was sleeping with wives and he was sleeping with daughters of fellow politicians that we know of, but they kept it quiet. Right. But the, but the real public scandal 
did not um did not bring shame upon her in fact i think she was lauded for for hillary yeah mm-hmm. as sort of like a a champion of loyalty that's loyalty. my perception yes well within that um it's i'm interested in the fact that most of the sex advice uh, sex counselors um sex therapists you know out there famous or neighborhood ones work to keep the marriage intact you know their basic aim is stay together find a way to work through it so the sanctity of marriage as it has been handed down to us through the generations is still very important and um there isn't a very clear place for women to be alone you know unmarried her whole life you know single her whole life who is not lesbian i mean we're always talking within the heteronormative population so yeah you're an outlier i'm an outlier yes. <laughs> yeah i have not been able to be i was so traumatized by my father um not that he was unusual in any way i mean i i think you know he was pretty average in his expectations of me but it just shocked me so much that i could never have a man call me his wife i just had an issue mm. you know i could not belong belong like that um i i i found the the loss of i of agency uh completely you know uh, claustrophobic and debilitating but since the advent of the me too movement i have come to realize that this i that has been so important to me i choose uh, you know i am the way i am um is actually male in gender so it takes us back to what you know you were saying about being able to speak in the male initiative mm-hmm. in your sexting and in your first dates mm-hmm. through the apps um i really feel think that that's all we have is the male pronoun <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean tell me more about that because i've you know i've heard you say before that the language that we speak is is a patriarchal language and that for some reason comes as it doesn't exactly align with my my feeling my my instincts um can you can you explain to me what you mean by that well this is the irony of it that the words that i have at my disposal are all male words so my understanding of it is that patriarchy which is basically the society we know and i i don't call it patriarchy in a negative sense it's just the way that it has been built up um the society as we know it has been created in part to protect men from women to protect civilization from the wild sexual power of women um who are the generators the procreators the birthers So we have that magic of nature and there is culture built on nature in order to control it. Um 
So I think that all the words that we have, which is the, the history that's been written, these words that we use now in every language, not just English, are based um, on the legal system and inheritance system, um, business and enterprise, morality, religion, that enables patriarchy, the society that we all live in. So their job is to create meaning within that system. Um, all, of our, I mean, all of our words are very limited because there's such vast compromises. You know, we, we pick on some sound and some sign of letters, alphabet, a few words, a few uh, letters, and we try to squeeze all the nuances of our own personal depth through them in order to translate ourselves both to ourselves within the system and to the one we're speaking to. So they're already extremely limiting for both men and women. But I feel that they are within that system that supports male supremacy. And I say that with reservation because I feel that men are equally victimized by it. Um, but by the very constraints of the language that they created. And by patriarchy. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're a writer because you can, that's the project, right? To, that's the project. To reclaim the language, right? Um, so going into this idea that men are afraid of our magic, right? Um, this brings me back to the idea that maybe what they fear about surrendering to the pussy is the fear of our magic. Hmm. Um, because it's really different to impale the vagina than to open your mouth to it, right? Isn't that sort of where evil spirits can enter? It's a very <laughs> a vulnerable space, yes, right? Yes, yes. And I, I had a, um, an encounter on one of my dates, um, and I thought, you know, this might be um, evidence to support this theory. <laughs> um, I had, uh, I had my, my period, which I'm still young enough to have, and um, I sort of opened my legs and expected the regular procedure to um, ensue, and I was met with horror. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a man you had been with before. Yes, and um, and the horror manifested into disgust. No way. Mm -hmm. um, and basically he said, um, I don't want to go there. And I was like, why? <laughs> And he said, because it's usually not as pleasant, it doesn't smell as good, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't taste as good. And I was like, well, try it out. <laughs> um, and so he proceeded to, um, I, I had the sense that we had sort of worked through it and he was game and, you know. So he ate you out yeah. and you came. He did, While yeah. While you, yeah. And yeah. you weren't menstruating heavily? Or? No, it was right. very light. I would imagine. Like, yeah. yeah. It's very light. Um, and I figured, well, you know, you don't have to go and put your mouth in the hole and drink it. 
There's all this other area on the top. Exactly. There's the clit. There's all these other details to attend to that you don't need to interact with the blood that much, you know? So I figured that it was something more profound than just encountering blood. Like um, the smell or the taste, which is minimal. Yeah, and I'm starting to think that there is a correlation between um, their feeling um, afraid of maybe um, putting their mouth on the source of our power. I mean, what moment better um, is is this? What what better sign of our fertility? than the menstruation, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, to confront the bloody vagina is to really look straight on to the woman's superiority. Mm -hmm. An egg-making machine. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if what you think of that, if you think that maybe the, um, the, 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 the fear of our um, reproductive power might be the reason why men don't like to eat pussy as much as they should. Hmm. Well, I think that definitely originally it is it was that fear, um, the fear that women are in charge of the reproduction of the species, um, the notion that a man could not be sure if that's his child. Uh, he had no way of knowing other than owning the woman and keeping her tight in, you know, in his stable, in his harem, and not letting her out of his sight, let's say. Um, also, the way that you know the the way that female sexuality is built by nature, um, it's pretty endless. You know, the female orgasm is kind of unending, un unlike male orgasm. So the way that nature designed it, we are in heat. When we're in heat, like any other species, when we're turned on, well, you know, one guy comes. Um, uh, the, 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 we pick one mate. There is the agency. We, in in nature, by nature, we are the ones who choose. So we choose nature, the one. Nature. It seems like animals have figured out this consent business better than we humans have. Well, yeah. I mean, we had originally. I'm going to assume, but we've put all of these uh, limitations on it. So the way we're designed, the woman picks the man based on attributes. His plumage. Right. His plumage. Yeah. And. They have sex to the best of his ability. He comes. <laughs> I, uh, ideally, they come together. Mm -hmm. But once he ejaculates his full load <laughs> in her, he passes out. I mean, you know, by nature, men like fall asleep mm -hmm. after. That's it. They're done. We're just st activated. getting started. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. Uh, we're just activated. Yeah. So out in nature, like in the forest, we come and we scream, so the men in the area who uh, hear our screams, you know, like other animals, realize that there is a woman in heat there, and they come close. And when the first guy falls asleep, we get to pick the next guy. Do birds sing when they orgasm? Do female birds, birds sing? I don't know, my dear. 
Wait, do monkeys scream? <laughs> the, <laughs> the female monkeys like I know yes, that. Yeah. I know that this is definitely true for us, for our physical, sexual, uh, you know, anatomical makeup because I've read on it extensively. I'm not an expert on, on baboon species. <laughs> But I, I only know like dogs and cats because I've had them uh-huh. <laughs> and they definitely do this. Uh, you know, the cats for sure do it. They start like, you know, giving out all these signs and then the male cats come. Right. They do before, but during. During they're inseparable. I mean, I've had both dogs and cats. During the sex, you cannot take them apart. Does the, until does the, the female boy, dog... Until the male ejaculates in the female. Then, but this doesn't end, at least in cats and and dogs the only species that I've lived with you know almost all my life so I am (laughs) familiar with their ways the female calling for sex doesn't Mm -hmm. end until she's pregnant when she's pregnant it all stops then she has the baby so it's not contingent on the orgasm Mm -mm. it's pregnancy right so she can take and that's how we're built we're supposed to just have all the men one after the other we're getting more and more aroused, more and more turned on, and uh, the best, most potent little swimmer, sperm mm-hmm. of all these men, actually gets the egg uh, fertilized. Now we have a fetus, and we can relax. And, and then everything kind of shifts because we have the child. But that doesn't work for patriarchy because they don't know whose baby that is. So in that setup, that natural world pre you know civilization world we get to name the children they're all our children the women's children there is no father whatever you know so what patriarchy has done is kind of rearranged the system so the men have to know that it's their kid they have a way to know that that's their child name it and then pay for it you know mm-hmm. support it um and from there we've got to the recent divorce laws, which I think kind of undo a lot of the advantage that men had earned. (laughs) Because they have to pay, you know, a lot of money. I'm aware. (laughs) For those children. Why do you think I have my freedom? (laughs) Exactly. It's always like, just do what you want. (laughs) Don't don't sue for a divorce. Don't go to a lawyer. Do cats, do cats have orgasms oh, I female do females? they sure sound like it but I, I haven't read up on it and i you know they sound like it though definitely i know they nothing about up. the the, <laughs> the animal world orgasm but i'm sure we can learn a lot from them mm-hmm. well i think that I understand what you're saying about language being patriarchal in the sense that, I mean, perhaps I would understand it better if you could, if you said that it was, um, that language was devised to um, separate the haves and the have-nots, right? Like, it's it's a power strategy. Well, language is the beginning of history, the beginning of of civilization, period. In the beginning, there was logos. Logos. Before logos, there is chaos. There is chaos, disorder, nature. Right. And then there is uh, logos, which is also God, meaning creation, cosmogony, uh, you know, how God enters into our 
understanding of life and the world is through language. Wait, without language, there is no God. There's no story. Mm-mm. So without the generation story, we're back to, you know, what Logos calls chaos. Right. So it's, it's, <laughs> We don't know if it's chaos, but that's how it's been presented. Right. And, and the lack of chaos is control, is the assertion right. of control, is keeping um, chaos and keeping wildness mm-hmm. at bay. Mm-hmm. And who are the wild ones? The women. We are. The women have to be tamed. Yeah. So... Yes. Because we got this thing that men don't, you know, baby making. Yes. And it's kind of unfair. So nature is on our side, culture is on their side, and that's Mm -hmm. the balance. Mm -hmm. And now that, you know, here we are, it's the 21st century. I think that we can take sex back. Through technology. Through technology, through words, speak sex. Mm -hmm. Find ways to take our sexual power back. Because no matter what else it has done, the culture has not managed to control and articulate it. Like we have words for everything we do until we enter the bedroom and then the lights are off and the guys are supposed to kind of know what they do. And that's the heteronormative average, right? So we now, as kind of like more liberated and aware women, are trying to say what we want. That's what you're doing by sexting, by asking these questions. You know, you're putting it in words. Are you ready to do this? Mm-hmm. And you can also say what you don't want, right. if there is such a thing. I don't know. But you know, it's interesting if we want to talk about pillow talk or you know, dirty talk in in the actual bed, right? So we we're talking about the pre-negotiation, um, which. By the way, there the powers of of language on the woman's, you know, sexuality is enormous. I have a friend who says like, the woman's sexual organ is the brain, mm-hmm. you know, which I I I don't agree with that. Um, Me neither. But it's a Roland Barth quote: "The sexual organ is the ear." Ah, uh, I think I hear and I obey. That's uh, the essay by Roland Barth. Well, interesting because mm. she's co-opted it to, to have nothing to do with <laughs> obeyance, but to have to do with um, being titillated, sort of being, um, sort of auditioning a man, right? Mm. Like sort of a more control position where he has to be, you know, he has to be funny, he has to be intelligent. Um, and I find those things not not only to be the case when you're pursuing someone as a mate. But I don't find those things to be the case when you're pursuing a lover. Mm. Um, a boy toy. If also, you will. Right. I just like the word toy. Yeah. Though. Yeah, toy toy is interesting um, because, uh, the, well, the toy, the toy doesn't play back, though, right? You know, um, so, okay, so the, 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 the man who is in, in the role of, sharing this sexual space with me. Um, I have the sense that after the language games of, of sexting, once we're in bed, I'm not interested in negotiating. Mm. You know? Mm. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't feel like I should have to say, well, do this and don't do that. I like all of that negotiation to happen physically. Does that make sense? So I guess maybe I'm unusual in the sense that I don't feel like I have to say or I want to say, will you please do this? You know, I feel like 
if if I have to do too much talking in the bed, then it's not good. Hmm. I, I'm looking for an animal understanding. So you've done your talking theoretically yes. in advance yes. by sexting, by mm-hmm. asking these questions. Mm-hmm. Do you like to eat pussy? Mm-hmm. Do you like someone to come in your mouth, etc., etc.? Right. Do, uh, do you like fisting or mm-hmm. fisting the girl, being mm-hmm. fisted, whatever the right. questions are? And then once you meet, you don't want to talk. Want to feel like you're just swept away by this physical yes. passion, right? That's interesting because it it is a it is a feeling. It is a fantasy. I want to fall into it, and not have to do the work of creating it again. I feel like I've done the work, hmm. right? Yes. So yeah, pillow talk is not something that is part of my vocabulary. You know, and that's partly because, as you said, in within the sex space, you like to be submissive, right? Right. Right. So it's not your sexual job to, you know, give orders. Yeah, exactly. Right. But then, so language um, does have incredible power in in the in the text form, and I think it has. M- more power than the the language that you and I are sharing right now, the the oral language. The phone is a very charged space, mm-hmm. and there's nothing as erotic than receiving a text, a sext, a sext. I mean, th- this has been a complete like new level, you know. Almost, it's become a legitimate form of foreplay. And um, the power of seeing the the words written. I mean, you as a writer can understand this, and ne- I don't think ever before has the written word been so potent as an erotic trigger. Right. True. Because it is it is thanks to the intimacy of the iPhone, which is mm-hmm. so close to us, mm-hmm. and so even you could be aroused and moved to masturbate masturbation and orgasm, self-orgasm, simply by receiving texts from someone you haven't met. You don't even have to meet them, and the words themselves yeah. can get you to come, make yourself come, without any other uh, connection. Powerful. So that's, yeah. And that's more disassociation, right? It's like an even further remove. So uh, we're just cutting apart and compartmentalizing our sexual... Um, lives, I think, more than ever because of this phone technology. Right. But ideally, we're going to restructure them and put them back together well, again, yeah, a the, new right. ideally. And that's the only way to do it, right, is to break it apart into these little pieces and reassemble. Exactly. Yeah. I do wonder, and this is a slightly new topic, how the our children, Generation Z, you know, are, are handling it. Um, I was hoping... I call it, them Generation Me. <laughs> okay, I like that better. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was, I was thinking when my daughter was a, a child that she is going to be just an adamant feminist because from such a... From her toddler years, you know, She's I raised your daughter. Her, right, yeah. to be aware of word choice, of, you know, uh, the gaze, the male gaze, the male speech, um, expectations, you know, cliches. I always pointed everything out. Plus, you know, my walls are full of 
female sexuality-based art, and my bookshelves are full of that type of literature and essay work. So um, I've, when she was already in first year of middle school, I said, just to be clear, if anyone asks you for a blowjob, they have to eat you out first. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And I squeezed that in before she knew what it Beautiful. meant. Because I knew that in, later she wouldn't be interested in my input. Mm -hmm. How but old was she when you started this indoctrination? School, like first year of middle school. Um, but anyway, I have, I mean, yes, she's, she's aware and she's definitely um, in a position of power in with her boyfriend and her relationships but it is limited and you know I have found that that generation is not any different from ours it's incredible well the fact that you had to articulate that is astonishing in and of itself right right you would think again that a, a boy would use that as like let's pass go let's get exactly. her going exactly like the fact they that don't and I think part of that has to do with the fact that they have more access to porn and that the porn industry hasn't caught up with our right. so-called enlightened Me Too, mm -hmm. you know. Um, they get their sexual education from porn, yes. for sure, online. Right, and, and the boys the are the boys, ones who are, yeah. who are the seeking boys. the education. Right. So what's the antidote? Yeah, I mean, I think females need to make porn. And... Um, I love what you did with your daughter. That's that's a move, to to say okay, it's you know, should be obvious, but you first, <laughs> because we all know that you expect that from me, you know. Um, yeah, women definitely. There should be more, um, you know, porn made by women. There should be more sex guys written specifically for this generation. Me. Um, I I think that, they, you know, what they call, I mean, my daughter calls it rape culture. I think that that's like one of their terms that they use in everyday speech without quite understanding what it says. Um, so, she, but in what is called rape culture, meaning the culture defined by the Me Too movement is a culture in which men in positions of power feel, um, you know, enabled to harass or... Um, not quite, you know, rape, but, um, you know, ob objectify and sexually assault, perhaps, um, you know, women who are in positions of weakness, um, especially in the work environment. Um, that culture is very familiar to our kids. They think that it's basically the norm out there and that they have to always be aware. So... They are in a sexually defensive place, well, both my, the boys and the girls. Well, I worry about my boys. I mean, at right. any moment, a, a girl could accuse, accuse them. them. Um, but, and then, you know, our Pasal and I have just been lately, I think we probably came late in the game to this, because you kind of don't think that your son is going to be a perpetrator of this, right? But recently... Um, in the last couple of maybe how long has this been going on? What's the two years? I'm two say. years. And what do you think set it off? The the mostly the Weinstein incident, right? I think the Weinstein made it mainstream. Yeah. 
So we have been, you know, we've talked to them about it, but I, I mean, I'd like to think that we've just raised them in a way to think that they can't um, take what's not theirs or like kind of like raise them to think that it's kind of not cool to not seduce like seduction is a power trip right so earning permission yeah and it's kind of the consent yeah and you know having boys who are athletic also i feel that i'm hoping that they in hindsight there could have been more that i that i i could have done but i'm hoping that they can equate seduction to scoring right scoring shouldn't be tricking a girl or dropping something in her drink it should be Mm. something that you earn Mm -hmm. and you know as a woman who likes to be seduced and I'm attracted to men who have sort of I guess the power and I'm attracted to that I'm hoping that my boys will have sort of by by osmosis taken (laughs) in those values yeah but 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 I mean I I I am sometimes worried to say that I am worried for them because that I feel like I can't say that because feminists are going to be mad at me because how dare I think about the boy perspective we now only they don't get to have a voice now it's only about the women and if you bring up any um degree of nuance you get shamed like I've been shamed for saying things like oh you know well um it's not always you know it's you can't always believe the girl right it's not it's not really always um you know right and wrong so so clearly defined and um the idea that we should err err on the side of the women because for so long we did not. It's dangerous. It's not fair. Right, right. Um, I agree. It makes no difference. I feel that we cannot inform our current um, judgment by what happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago because it's just not fair to our children, most of all. And... um, yeah, I, re- I remember that I article in Rolling Stone. Remember that whole scandal where... The boy was falsely accused. Right. And, you know, this woman writer basically built her career on the story of this girl, which turned out to be untrue. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it almost brought down the magazine. It, mm. it was just a huge um, lack of, of um, you know, fact-checking because everyone... Down the down the chain of command, made the assumption it's that the girl would you know would not lie because she's the victim. How could anyone you know lie and say she was gang raped when she wasn't? Mm-hmm. So and then like that the the Duke uh, lacrosse team I think mm-hmm. and so there have been cases that actually um, disempower female truth because of false accusations. Um, you know so. It doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, the girls in Salem, Massachusetts um, saying that, you know, there are witches out there or if it's 
today's girls, you know, blaming boys for robbing them of agency, you know, we have to stay objective and on the side of truth and, and thorough and not assume that, you know, because women are physically weaker, they are, you know, um, the weaker or the victim sex because we're not. And it, it's not what we should fight for as feminists. I, I don't want to fight for my right to you know, always be right or my right to be the the weaker gender or the victim gender you know not at, not at all I, I you know in a sense I feel that I want to fight for my right to be a stronger gender the gender that can understand and empathize and forgive and you know embrace and nurture because that's how the species moves on and evolves you know that's how the consciousness of boys and girls is improved i i don't envy people who are raising younger kids now i mean yeah i mean i know my Young job's not done but they're in mm -hmm. college and it's yeah it's tough and i think that um the me too movement um first of all talk about language like the name of me too is problematic right because it it is it's talking about um alliances and it kind of is just tapping into a rage culture um and mob mentality yes so yes. it's not just me this idea of, of aligning yourself with another victim there's a domino effect everybody holding hands together and it creates a false um, fury, right? And I think um, as, a, as a mother of boys and as somebody who has a very complicated relationship with feminism, I, I feel outside of it and I feel um, alienated, you know? And it's sort of the same thing that's happening, you know, with the extreme left and, um, which is another subject, but you know, the sort of policing of, of political correctness. But I think that the Me Too movement is really suffering from, it's got its blinders on in a way that is, um, is really damaging to um, sexuality, right? Not just power, but like bedroom sexuality. Because I mean, I'm, I mean, can you imagine like what kid, boys in college are, I don't like to think about it, but can you imagine what, what they're up against? You know, I think it's going to create a culture of puritanism mm -hmm. and yes. suppression. Yes. yes, I think it has already. Yeah, I, I think these kids, yeah, these kids don't seem as sexually charged as certainly we were when we were teenagers. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the 60s, uh, I mean, we weren't born in the 60s but we were uh, kind of elevated and energized you know by the 60s so i know that when the, i think we've discussed this before when i first came to america and i was 15 uh, the, the first week uh, this the kids i had met at the high school in la 
And I, I had come from a Greek island. So there I am in the high school in LA a week later, and they took me to see Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed my consciousness of everything. Mm. I was in that movie theater, reborn. You were, reborn. You were Janet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was Janet, and I was, you know, reborn in the sense of I reevaluated everything. I started from scratch, redefining, you know, my my understanding of, of all values. Um, it was lucky for me that all of this was happening in a language that was not my native language, mm. in a place that was so different from mm -hmm. the place I had been at until you were, then. You were in Transylvania. Right. I was in Transylvania and I knew that, okay, this is not, you know, like this is not the way, you know, Greece was. We have to start all over if we're going to fit in. So I had this uh, kind of like new agency of, uh, of redefining sexuality, female sexuality, but it was all informed by the 60s, for sure, by that sexual liberation of the 60s um, and 70s. And um, uh, it was too bad that AIDS, uh, you know, happened kind of at the same time and it, you know, limited everything just as I was experiencing it. And I do feel, historically speaking, that, you know, a AIDS brought the first... Um, you know, return of Puritanism to that culture. And I think Me Too is the of, second of one. Of the 60s, yeah. And and feminism was yeah. limiting both first wave and Me Too, definitely. Um, the, they do bring back that inherent Protestant mm -hmm. American Puritanism, mm -hmm. um, which we the sanctity, don't have. The sanctification of marriage, of virtuosity... In order for women to be safe now, they must be virtuous. Right. And, and, and the, you know, the, the fear of the other and the fear of the gray area. You know, this kind mm -hmm. of like American tendency to, to simplify, mm -hmm. you know, things that cannot mm -hmm. be simplified at all. <laughs> um, so um, I, 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 I do think that regarding the Me Too movement, it, there is a backlash that we are experiencing um, in the presidency of, of Trump, for example, a backlash uh, against political correctness and against, you know, a, a kind of liberalism that seems uh, fanatical. Mm -hmm. So people like you, in a sense, and I, I know that you didn't, I don't mean politically, mm -hmm. um, who don't feel quite um, embraced by by these liberal Me Too feminist new definitions uh, because they are housewives or for whatever other reason find themselves without an allegiance, mm -hmm. you know, without a political home. Exactly. And there were a lot of protest votes or lack of votes in the last election, you know, in 2016. A lot of people who stayed home or, you know, voted for a third party or whatever because they didn't feel included. So here we are, you know. Marginalized. Marginalized by our own, by our own side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Our team. <laughs> our team. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break for a minute and we'll be right back.
Welcome to Speak Sex. I'm Eve Eurydice, your host. I have my friend Sloan with me here in Miami today. Sloan is from New York. We've been talking about um, sex, women, and the language of our sexuality nowadays. Um, so I do have a couple of thoughts that I want to run by you, a couple of topics. Um, one is the transactional aspect of our sexuality. You did say that you uh, feel turned on when a man spends money on you, when a man will you know, get a hotel room where you will meet. And so this, what I call you know, provider sex, is something that mm. does excite you. And I, I wanna I've never heard that term, provider sex. <laughs> Right, so the, my term, I coined it. Um, <laughs> I, it. It means that instead of uh, selecting the man who is, you know, the most muscular mm-hmm. and can protect us physically mm-hmm. best or the man whose pheromones and chemistry are more familiar to us or seem to complement our own tribal, you know, being best, mm-hmm. um, we have learned to choose the man who would be the best provider for our children mm-hmm. Even when it comes to men who we know for sure we will not procreate Mm -hmm. with. We're Mm -hmm. done with our procreating. For sure. There's that residual provider lust, if you will. I like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, I think that having already found my my baby daddy, (laughs) (laughs) I I still can't deprogram myself to not be um, physically turned on by um, the s- signs of um, the capacity to provide for me. And that can be, that doesn't have to be financial. It could be somebody who takes charge, mm-hmm. you know, because that I think is part of what the cave woman in me wants. Um, somebody who can arrange. I don't want to be the one to arrange the date. I mm-hmm. just want to show up and have the magic be created for me. I want a storyteller, somebody who's going to narrate and that I and I want to submit to the story. And if I like the story, I'll come back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm in, I'm interested in this because, you know, in the process of making creating a sexual language and hopefully creating a new female oriented mm-hmm. sexual language to implement where there was none. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to me where the you know provider or transactional or um, you know romantic sex ends, and the actual sexual act begins. Mm. At which point, um, this language, you know, gets implemented, mm-hmm. not the language of um, seduction and romance and kind of like showing male prowess through you know material uh, prestige Mm -hmm. but the actual one-on-one naked in the flesh in Mm semi-darkness language Um, how we see that whether or not we name it in the act doesn't matter as much as the fact that we can name it and we practice naming it either before or after or during um, and I came to this because I wrote this book, Satiric on USA, 
about all the different sexual scenes that I could get entry into in America. I traveled for like three years around the country and I, you know, hung out and lived and met and, you know, ate and um, lived with uh, all kinds of different subcultures. Um, I was with cross-dressers and I was with like sexual cutters and a lot of different uh, BDSM, you know, SNM subgroups um, as well as celibates, uh, you know, priests. It's a, it's a wide range. I didn't write about all of them. I, I wrote about a couple of dozen. But um, I found in the process that they had all come up with extremely detailed terminology. So envious of them. Of everything mm-hmm. they did. Mm-hmm. And, and they have like the cutest, um, you know, most inventive terms mm-hmm. for um, power exchange, for, uh, you know, fantasy roles, um, for sexual acts, and we in the heteronormative world have none. Mm. So, you know, they actually get to negotiate Mm -hmm. uh, and take that for granted that, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to enter sexual space without extensive negotiation because, of course, you know, when there is uh, extreme power exchange or, or, you know, physical pain, they need the safe words and they need the limits, the soft limits, the hard limits. They need to discuss in advance. Um, you know, this is how far we can go. Um, this is my safe word A and my safe word for like hard limit B. Um, Are these negotiations always based on physical limits? Do they have language as well for emotional barriers? Well, I think that they 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 do in the sense that a lot of their hard limits are based on emotional experiences, like trauma, or, right? Mm-hmm. Childhood trauma or or something like that. So they will say, "I cannot, um, you know, I don't like this practice because it reminds me of you know whatever childhood abuse or an ex ex boyfriend invalidation mm-hmm. or some mm-hmm. other PTSD thing that I have." So in that sense, yes, it's not only like your uh, pain tolerance, but your psychological, mm-hmm. you know, uh, stability or or um, adjustment. Yeah, and now that these things are are more part of the mainstream culture, we heteros, you've known this because you embedded yourself, but people people like me who are just regular old heteronormative people <laughs> are now seeing the the poverty of our own language and and again I feel alienated again because right. these subcultures have got it figured out and any kind of hetero negotiation it, you kind of are inventing the language and nobody else speaks it right well, they had to, you know, they, unlike what they call vanilla relationships, you know, they had to define their sexuality from the beginning because, yeah. you know, they're in the context, for example, of a dungeon. Um, so to make sure that what is about to happen is not assault and it's not torture, mm-hmm. they have to very consciously, you know, define it with words. 
um, and and these contracts that that they discuss. You know, so they have extensive boundary assurances. They have um, aftercare conversation, so they know after the sex is the sex plate, the sex exchange, the mm-hmm. sex scene is over. Who treats whom? How? Um, you mean in terms of um, wound care? Wound right. care, but also um, uh, actively what you do. For example, um, do you unbind if there is, you know, if someone is bound, do you mm-hmm. um, unbind them? Do you give them 10 minutes to come back to non-sexual space? Um, do you use certain words of, you know, intimacy to reassert that you care, you, you empathize, you, you know, that you're not a dom but you are mm-hmm. a partner, you switch mm-hmm. out of dom space and you get into, do you uh, use uh, nicknames? Um, they, you know, depends on, it also depends a lot on the type of play, you know, like there is the MDLG mommy dad dom little girl, mm-hmm. or there is the uh, little person, you know, big person exchange. Um, so these are preset roles. Characters, yeah. Characters. Right. They're archetypal characters exactly. that strangers can fit into. Well, yeah, there is age play. So that's the CGL or DDLG. Um, that's just an example, right? I mean, there are like, they also do like the whole sugar baby uh, part, but not in lifestyle, only in the sex play. So, you know, sugar baby is a lifestyle. It's actually. What is sugar baby? Well, as a lifestyle, it's actually um, slightly more popular these days among the young girls. Oh, to be kept. Yeah, they're kept by an Mm -hmm. older man. Mm -hmm. And uh, they like to idealize it. They have conventions. They they figure Mm. out how you can do it, etc. But that's different from the actual sex play in which you don't engage in any of it until you enter the sex space and then you use certain words, you know, so you live out your sexual fantasy, basically. But in order to do that, you negotiate first and you say, these are the words that turn me on. And this is the part that I want you to be in. So like for us, for more heteronormative uh, people, for example, it would be like doing a costume sex scene. So like, let's say, oh, you know, let's dress as a French maid. And then you will say, call me Mr. And Mm -hmm. I will call you, uh, you know, my pet, or Mm -hmm. I will, you know, whatever, call you Matilda. (laughs) And you you call me sir. I don't know. (laughs) But that's, that's how you negotiate. I think the Matilda is a hard, (laughs) hard limit, the unsexiest (laughs) name possible. Um, So wait, do you find that a hetero language, um, accommodates this kind of play do we have anything that's set because i'm hearing this and i'm thinking to be honest it sounds a little limiting it sounds a little boring to me to have these pre-assigned roles in the mm-hmm. way our because we don't have these these set games i feel like there's much more imagination that is available to to heterosexual sex because we don't have a language. So we can start from ground zero and just invent something. Right. Well, that's kind of my idea here. But I, I do find inspiration mm-hmm. in, the, in these sexual subcultures because I kind of learned from them. For example, you know, service submission. So I, as a feminist, 
you know, I, do, I don't like cooking dinner for mm. guys and I don't like, you know, doing chores and I just don't because I feel like it robs me of whatever power I have in this world. But I would do it if I was like naked or in a you know cat, see-through cat suit and it was part of like a sexual exchange and like, you know, I was, um, you know, turning them on while I was doing it because then it would arouse me because it would be in quotes. It would be a conscious choice instead of like what I'm doing because I have to, because they expect me to like service them. But if I'm doing it as part of sexual pleasure and it's in one-off, meaning that's not how we always have sex, but it's just a play, I would totally be up for it to experience it, you know, and I think it would excite me. Um, objectifying myself, you know, wearing like a little something or other, whatever we would come up with to accommodate that scene. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm saying, that if we take something out of the context of daily life and sexualize it and make it a conscious sexual practice, mm -hmm. um, it becomes more, more interesting and also it becomes more um, egalitarian because then it we can reverse roles again within the sex and having the guy do that part and try out and see how that feels. So it's a way to, to use sex to try out social role modeling mm. in that space. Um, you know, I've, like in vanilla relationships, in, in a sense, we're always vying for power. We're trying to find our place in the dynamic and at least you know, f for myself, how much power am I giving away? How much power am I getting? You know, like you, I, I like to feel that at some point the man is worshiping me. Mm -hmm. but, th but that is part of the power exchange. Is right? sex always about power? I think so. I, I think that that's how it's set up. I mean, not at the moment of orgasm, no. So there is a moment within the sex when we forget who we are and all of that evaporates mm. and we're just two bodies and then we're not even ourselves, right? You don't even remember who you are and you're just Because our notions of ourselves are always defined by power. Yeah. So when we reach the moment when we're no longer ourselves... We're free from all of that. And I think that that's the ultimate beauty and power of mm. sex is to get to that space. To get to that space. But you think it takes these negotiations in oh, order to free ourselves. Complex right. negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also in order to not repeat ourselves to drudgery. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you're 19, maybe you don't need the, that many negotiations because a lot of things are still new mm -hmm. but you know 10 years later or 20 years later when you you want to you know you want to experience you want to continue to experience new dynamics um negotiating becomes much more important um you know after your life experience um so that you can, you know, understand your own limitations and stretch them out and this, expand them. Would you say that this always falls under the realm of fantasy play? No, I think the fantasy play is just one of the ways to enter it. I mean, I think that there are numerous 
sexual accidents, <laughs> good sexual accidents, you know, um, happy ones that we can get into uh, by being open to trying new things and not just repeating what we think works or what, you know, what we know our bodies do best because we change, you know, we change all the time. Our mm -hmm. bodies change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the things that we do at the gym or when we work out change or how, you know, how our body responds to things. And each partner is yeah. going to elicit a different set of movements. Exactly. Um, but also we change our minds about things. Like, you know, what we think about a certain issue, we get to change our minds mm. again and again. And so I think that sexually too, we we are meant to do that. Um, so if we just kind of consciously are open to, you know, change within sex and not that repetition that we assume is safer, Might but it's not. This, what you're speaking of, this ability to change and reinvent yourself, I think the the bedroom is now the site of right. the greatest transformations, which is why we're hearing so much about transgenderism and identity, you know, gender identities, and think that that now what you're saying makes perfect sense to explain um, the the way that our actions in the bedroom and our fantasies in the bedroom can be the source of our own reinvention because it is kind of the sort of last space that we have right. to change our minds. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And so long as there is a sense of structure, which is where this kind of, you know, negotiation or, or speaking sex comes in at the beginning, then you can break it all down and put it back together again and build yourself up mm -hmm. stronger or slightly altered, um, you know, discover desires that you had kept repressed yes um just for the sake of fitting in with the mob you mm -hmm. know so like the, the sexual subcultures they will do like sensual deprivation you know mm, they will do uh, well you're kept in darkness or you're kept so you can't hear or you you know blindfold Ooh. or um anyone or or more than one, you know, of the five senses are suppressed. And how do you feel during sex when they are taken away? Mm. Because it puts more emphasis on the sexual pleasure. Um, or, you know, they do pet play. Um, they do, uh, you know, kink that has like, they have different types of risk awareness. Um, what or is pet de play? De dehumanizing. <laughs> um, pet play is when one wants to be the pet of the other. So you take care of your kitty or, you know, your puppy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and again, it's, 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 it's a lot about, um, you know, trust. Like the, the other, the owner of the pet makes all the decisions and all the choices and you just feel like you just stare at your owner and you're taken care of. Mm -hmm. So the pleasure is kind of giving up the self. When completely. you just looked at me like that, I, I kind of felt it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotcha. And what was the other one you said after pet play? <laughs> I don't know, but there are many. You know, there's needle play and knife play and um, scarring and... Uh, I don't remember which one. You know, there's full bondage where you, it, again, for example, full bondage to me is like um, a meditation. It's a meditative practice mm. if, if one tries it out because you have to keep stillness. You have to keep still space. And it, when you do it, 
the best way to do it is find that place in your mind where you can be completely still and not be you as your kids or speaking of pets, your dogs mm. know you. It's a lost kind of, self. Right. You, uh-huh. you go kind of like more out of body and it's a way to keep your mind still while your lover binds you, mm-hmm. which takes a long time. You know, mm. people don't realize that, but it's easily, you know, 15 minutes of stillness and you can play music, but you don't have to. You can just be, you know, meditating into becoming whatever it is that you're imagining you being. So the, the binding and the unbinding, unbinding is, are both very ritualistic, um, you know, and they're focused on the body and they change the look of the naked body into something new. Sculptural. And, right, yeah. So all of this kind of like abandonment of self and um, sacrifice or loss of agency is erotic if it's your choice. So mm. That's what I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, or we're, we're talking about, you know, choosing to give it up and choosing mm-hmm. how you give it up and for how long and to whom and why, mm-hmm. you know, and when all of that mm-hmm. um, is part of this like speaking sex and articulating what you want or what you fantasize. And you may find out that you don't like it and you don't do it again. It's interesting. Men could really, if they knew this, they could get anything they want. They could get you to clean their house. <laughs> yeah. They only fra- <laughs> framed it right. with the language. Right. Um, yeah. So th- these are... These are um, yeah. so, I would For love example, to there hear... is a fetish called rape play. <laughs> right. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. I can see how that would be appealing to a woman as well, mm-hmm. who would willingly submit to that. Yeah, especially a woman who, for example, has been raised in a strict religious to household. To abandon that. Right. So it's not her fault, right? I'm sure it would take the fun out for a real rapist, though. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. No, yeah, I can empathize with a real rapist, but but we can hope that this could be what you're suggesting, what you're trying to build. This language of negotiation really could be a kind of antidote to a lot of the wayward desires of men, right? Because it, if they feel empowered by their um, their ability to have a woman submit and there are very many women who willingly submit exactly i so would have to say that they the, just speak it yeah and engage verbally yeah. in this foreplay use your words use like your, tell our kids right yeah and instead of you know the other thing is we have all these new words about narcissists for instance mm-hmm. which are very accurate you know but like the love bombing which is followed by the hoovering and the gaslighting mm-hmm. and the disca- discarding and all of that so During the love bombing, all the effort they put... What is love bombing? Love bombing is when they gain your... They, they woo you. Okay. You know, they court you and they gain your trust and your faith. Not by earning it, by, but by bombing you with all the cliches of um, romance. You know, you're the only one for me. I will die without you. Mm-hmm. The moment I saw you, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. All the stuff you read in like a romance true. novel. <laughs> Well, mm, they say them, though. They mm-hmm. can say them, and they work. 
And then when they they're done, they move on. So instead of using that kind of cliche, boring language, they could just use the sex language, the speaking of sex language, which will be more honest. Cut the middleman. And, right. Yeah. And then you don't have to feel bad about yourself. And mm-hmm. you don't have to, like, gaslight somebody mm-hmm. or ghost them or what, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You just have the sex that you've discussed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, honesty is a huge part of it. You know, finding, giving permission and finding permission to speak truth, which isn't easy. You know, between the two genders about sex, it isn't as easy as it seems. Well, we not... feel like we should please the other instead. You know, say what they want us to say. And don't do that, you know. Just mm. speak truth instead. Well, you run... Th- when you start to discuss, you run the risk of turning yourself off as well. It's a great risk. You can push the other person off or maybe even yourself because... We have all been sort of taught as women to like the love bomb. And when when we say that we don't want the love bomb, like my, you know, particular practice, mm-hmm. um, it opens up a lot of doubts about what you do want. Mm-hmm. And you have to sort of discover, rediscover for yourself. Exactly. Well, that's why it's kind of retraining our consciousness Right. Because it is consciousness have, training. Right, it is. Yeah. And and it's kind of opening new neural pathways. So, yeah. you know, we've read the romance novels, right. we watched the Disney movies as kids, and yeah. we've formed our understanding of what hurts, what's rejection, and what's reward. And what turns us on. Right. So Cinderella and Belle and what, you know, um, Ariel, all that. It was imprinted. We understood those tropes. We have to relearn all that, like get rid of what, you know, is really fake mm-hmm. and bringing the truth in its place. And by practicing it, we're going to open up new Pathways. ways of understanding it. Yeah, m- mentally. It's all in our minds and it, our consciousness. Right. So we can literally retell ourselves what turns us on. Right. You know, I don't know how many more kids are going to be watching Sleeping Beauty yeah. and Snow White now that we realize that it's rape. Yeah. I think a lot. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's time for new fairy tales. Exactly. It's t- new time porn. for new everything. Yeah. Well, so hopefully we will find ways to do it by talking about mm-hmm. it. And this is why we're here today. So thank you for coming. It's been super fun. I know. I love it. Come back, yeah, please. I will. It's too cold in New York City. Yeah, yeah, it's the time to be in Miami. For sure. And thank you everyone for listening. This was another episode of Speak Sex. I'm Eve Eurydice and uh, I'll talk to you next week. Bye.